I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Are the U.S. and China headed for inevitable conflict? That's the provocative, timely, and somewhat scary question posed by one of America's great authorities on international affairs, Harvard's Graham Allison. Allison looks at rising tensions between the two global competitors through a 2,500-year lens in his new important book, Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? Don't worry, Allison explains it very clearly, but it's centered on a central principle that has resulted in 12 wars over the last 500 years, situations when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling one, like China and the U.S. today. Indeed, on the one hand, from trade to North Korea and beyond, the U.S. and China seem to need each other. And yet, on the other hand, from trade to North Korea and beyond, the two powers often seem at each other's throats. Remember President Trump's tweet just a few weeks ago, just months after the two leaders met and dined on that chocolate cake at Mar-a-Lago? Trade between China and North Korea grew almost 40% in the first quarter, he tweeted. So much for China working for us, but we had to give it a try. Professor Allison and I had a terrific, really interesting conversation. We talked about China, the U.S., North Korea, each country's leader, the Peloponnesian War, Athens, Sparta, and simply because I couldn't pass up the chance, a tongue-in-cheek beef I've had with the professor for many years. Suffice to say, we're all good now. As background, in case you don't know, Graham Allison is the Douglas Dillon Professor of Government at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and the former director of Harvard's Balfour Center for Science and International Affairs. He served as Assistant Secretary of Defense in the first Clinton administration and Special Advisor to the Secretary of Defense under President Reagan. Professor Allison also has the sole distinction of having twice been awarded the Department of Defense's highest civilian award, the Distinguished Public Service Medal first by Secretary Caspar Weinberger, and second by Secretary Bill Perry. He served as member of the Defense Policy Board for Secretaries Weinberger, Carlucci, Cheney, Aspen, Perry, Cohen, and Carter. He currently serves on the advisory boards of the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and the Director of the CIA. And he's written four books. Believe me, I could keep going on about Professor Allison's biography, but that's enough. One last note and ask from me to you. I hope you like these conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. Of course, if you don't like the conversations, please forget I ever mentioned it. Okay, no more bios or asks. Here's my conversation with Graham Allison. I really think you'll like it. Professor Allison, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. As, as a side note and a long-delayed thank you, and by the way, there is no reason for you to remember, but I took your international affairs class several lifetimes ago when I attended the Kennedy School. I loved the class. It was also, I believe, with uh, Joe Nye and Ernest May, uh, if memory serves. Or, oh, maybe, my goodness. These are the old days. Uh, at least two of the three were good ones, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, the other two aren't here to defend themselves, so we can, you know, exactly. you're, you're one of the good. But, uh, you know, from the bottom of my heart, not only thank you for the class, but, but thank you for letting me pass the class. That was, that was very gracious of you. <laughs> I, I'm sure you did brilliantly, and I... 
would be lying if I said I remembered which grade you got. There you go, Alice. No, but yeah, in fact, would this be the appropriate time to argue the grade? I mean, I really thought that, you know, I should have gotten a half grade higher on that one essay, well, we Professor. Should, we should probably look back and reread the paper. I think both of us would be amazed. Yeah, or, or well, I would be embarrassed. But uh, anyhow, uh, it's great to get to talk to you. And, oh, it's probably, and, probably better than you remember. Who knows? <laughs> uh, well, and let's talk about your writing. Congratulations. The book uh, is getting excellent reviews. Um, if we could, and just you know, for uh, the the three people who may not uh, know it, um, and to set the framework for our discussion, um, will you give the quick history lesson? Sparta, Athens, the Peloponnesian War, and Thucydides. What is the Thucydides trap? Okay, if we do the elevated version yes. first, there's Thucydides. Thucydides is a big thinker, and secondly, there's a big idea, Thucydides trap. Thucydides, which is a mouthful and which is hard to spell, but uh, Thucydides should be part of every one of your listeners' mental library. Thucydides was the founder of history. He wrote the first history book. He was the first to identify a dangerous dynamic, which I call Thucydides' trap, which is when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, Alarm bells should sound, extreme danger ahead, in most instances, tragically, war. So Thucydides wrote about this competition in classical Greece between the two great city-states of that time, uh, Athens and Sparta. And in one of the most famous one-liners, he said, quote, it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made the war inevitable. So when a rising power like China threatens to displace a ruling power like the U.S., Thucydides would say, watch out. Terrific. Uh, an excellent and elevated uh, um, explanation. And you have noted, and through some of the work uh, uh, that, that you've been you know, uh, part of, to say the least, in, in looking at history, and you've noted 16 occasions in history where uh, the, the Thucydides trap um, uh, came into play, and 12 of those led to war. Um, so let's when you are now looking at uh, U.S. and China, um, you first raised this question um, around China and the U.S. I think you first raised it. That's probably not you, – you, one of the first times or at least one of the major essays that you wrote was your uh, piece back in 2015 that was in The Atlantic where you, where right. you, you, you raised this. And, and things have obviously heated up since then. And even today, um, things seem to change on the global stage daily. Um, do you fear that the um, that the, the the boundaries will move too quickly and the facts will move too quickly um, for the adjustments needed to avoid conflict? Well, uh, in a word, uh, yes. Uh, so, as I argue in the book, uh, business as usual, which unfortunately is what we've seen, uh, let's say for all of the 21st century, will likely produce history as usual, and as you said. Uh, in the book, I review the last 500 years. I find 16 cases in which a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power. Twelve of them end in war, four of them in not war. So to say that war was inevitable would be an exaggeration. But to say that the odds are against us would not be. 
What were and two of the four that did not um, happened were, were I guess the last two um, that you identified Germany vis a vis the UK and uh, France in U- the US 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 vis a vis the UK Ger- Germany versus the UK was the basically the driver of rise and fear that produced the conditions for World War One so that's in the war case. But the U.S. rise 125 years ago to what was to become the American century uh, was accommodated in a way that produced no war. Yes, and but I guess I meant, and maybe if I have this wrong, uh, please tell, you know just let me know. But I think it was Germany in the '90s with UK and France, and then Soviet Union. Oh, correct. Yeah, correct. those. So, so two of the recent situations, I guess, the where rising power versus ruling power. Um, so, I guess my, the, the heart of my question is: Is there anything about the more current situations that you know have, have we? Have we learned our lesson from history, or do you look at the two most recent uh, cases that you you know that you cite, and they they luckily did not uh, end in war, but you kind of chalk that up as over a fif- over a five hundred year view and say, well, you know, we got lucky the last two times, man, but but pay attention to what happened in the uh, previous fourteen. Well, that's an extremely good question, and uh, and I try to wrestle with it in the book. So I would say first, there are new things in the world. Uh, not as many as Americans imagine, but one new thing is nuclear weapons. And in the same way that nuclear weapons, when both the U.S. and the Soviet Union reached levels of arsenals that produced what was called mutual assured destruction, in which after I've attacked you and done my best to disarm you, you can still destroy me, that creates a huge uh, cautionary effect what I think probably in class we call the crystal ball effect, in which I know that even though I would like to attack you and I would like to destroy you, if I did so, I would be committing suicide. So that leads to a degree of caution. And that was true in the case of the U.S. and the Soviet Union in the Cold War. That was part of the bedrock. And that's also true in the competition between the U.S. and China today, whose arsenals have now reached this level of mutual assured destruction. So that's a reason why uh, there's not anybody that I've ever met in China who believes that war with the U.S. would be the solution to any Chinese problem. And there's certainly nobody in the Pentagon who believes that war with China would be the solution to any problem. But the, the, the danger that Thucydides points us to in this dangerous dynamic is that under conditions of rising power threatening ruling power, external actions or third-party actions can end up, uh, that would otherwise be inconsequential or easily managed, can end up triggering a set of actions and reactions by the principal actors that end them in a place that nobody wanted to go. And the most dramatic case of that is obviously World War I, where the assassination of an archduke who would otherwise have been not even noticed, end up producing the spark that created a fire that destroyed all of the great uh, nations of Europe. Uh, And if after the event in 1918, when the war was over, you had given any of the principal actors in 1914 a chance for a do-over, no one would have made the choices that he made. But they did, and the war came. Yeah, and, you, and your treatment of that in the book is really uh, is really harrowing. So, so 
in thinking then specifically uh, today and, and China and U.S., and I guess holding a, a aside the external factors, which, as you noted, you know, can, can, can creep up or occur suddenly and, and affect uh, even the best-intentioned internal actors. The book's title is Destined, Destined for War, but obviously in, through your analysis, um, you, know, you, you don't find that it's a foregone conclusion. Holding the external events aside, I guess, um, you, you say that to avoid conflict, uncomfortable but necessary adjustments must be made on both sides. Uh, run through them for me quickly for the U.S. and uh, uh, China. Um, what are the uncomfortable but necessary adjustments that must be made? So good, good, good point. And just to remind, the, the subtitle of the book has a question mark. Yes. <laughs> can America and China escape through Sinanese Trap? And I, I argue in the book in a kind of professorial fashion uh, no and yes. No, if we insist on business as usual, we're likely to get history as usual. But yes, as I uh, remind us, uh, Santayana told us, only those who refuse to study history are condemned to repeat it. So if I, if I look to your question now, I would say uh, the, in the cases of success, if we take a case, for example, Britain's managing to adapt and accommodate to a rising U.S at the beginning of the 20th century. So Britain started by distinguishing between what was vital for Britain, which was not much, but included in Britain's view the colonies like India and Canada, and what was not vital, which was all of the activity that Britain had been conducting, especially naval activity, in the Western Hemisphere. So it managed to accommodate America's rise so artfully that when World War I came, in 1914, the U.S. was Britain's lifeline, both in terms of supplies and in terms of credits for the war, up until the U.S. entered the war in 1917, when again the U.S. naturally entered in on Britain's, uh, as Britain's ally, and actually an essential ally for the victory in World War One. And then in the interim year, in the interwar years, again, American and British interests came to be so uh, intertwined that in World War II, again, America was the backup for Britain. So that's a, an interesting case where Britain, of course, had to adapt things that had, had otherwise taken for granted. So, for example, when Teddy Roosevelt threatened even war with Britain over Britain's attempt to use its naval power to settle a territorial dispute in Venezuela, some people in Britain said, well, we're simply not going to let this upstart boss us around or push us around. We've been there for 100 years. This is a natural way of things. But others said, wait a minute, we've got a rising Germany here much more approximately. We have lots of issues we have to deal with ourselves. We have to find a way to adjust and adapt. So the analogy to that, for example, would be, does the U.S. have a vital interest in every island and every constructed island in the South China Sea? I don't think so. Actually, as we demonstrated, I think very maturely in the opening to China and in the building of a relationship with China at the, in the period after 1971 that was part of our Cold War strategy against the Soviet Union, we found a way to accommodate China's insistence that Taiwan was an integral part of Chinese territory. So that was an accommodation to Chinese demands in order 
to adjust our relationship with China in order to have China's relationship with the Soviet Union grow more distant in order to help us with our Cold War strategy. So that, I would think, is a, a interesting illustration of how adaptation is possible. On the Chinese side, China is very full of itself right now, particularly because it's had such a spectacular rise and because, in Chinese perspective, they're throwing off the humiliation of 200 years in which Westerners have been exploiting their country. And so they're finally coming back into their own. And if they insist on being as uh, assertive as indeed the U.S. was at the beginning of the 20th century, then I would say this this relationship is going to turn out very, very badly. But they could learn to adapt and adjust too. And I think the, the hope would be that if you had adult supervision in both places, they would each look at their own interests. We're looking at all the problems the U.S. has, which is certainly a lot, and China looking at an even longer and more challenging list, and therefore have some balance in uh, the, in what matters more and what matters less, and therefore an ability to adapt and adjust in ways that don't that don't require us to cling to the status quo, which I think would be a huge mistake, and don't require China to be so impatient or impulsive. Let's talk for a second about the adult supervision that you uh, just mentioned. Um, the, the personalities of the presidents, uh, Trump and Xi, and you uh, uh, talk about that a little bit in the book in a really, really uh, interesting way. Um, how, how do these two unique uh, factors, individuals and their personalities and, the, 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 and, and some of the similarities and, and some of the things that they uh, believe in, as you point out in the book, um, how, do, how do those two individuals affect the dynamics of the uh, Thucydides trap in U.S. and China? Well, that, that's a, another thoughtful question and, and complicated. So basically, Thucydides' main point is a structural point, that the rising power uh, challenging the ruling power gives you a serious structural fact, whoever are the leaders and whatever the personalities. But of course, that's the setting. The question is then, how do the leaders play the hands? In the case of both Xi and Trump, there are many more similarities that have been appreciated. And this book was not written with Trump in mind. It's been five years in the making, uh, so it was. It is not a Trump book. But I notice in, in the forward to the book the extent to which I think Thucydides would say, both in the case of Trump and in the case of Xi. They are fairly natural expressions of a rising power in one case and a ruling power in the other. Long before Donald Trump made his mantra, Make America Great Again, uh, famous, uh, she had in 2012, when he became president, had his own mantra, and it was colloquially, Make China Great Again. He calls it officially the great rejuvenation of the great Chinese people. So the aspiration for greatness in both cases is the same, or, or not the same, but you know, almost identical, and one appropriate to the rising power and one appropriate to the ruling power. Secondly, each of them sees the other nation as the principal obstacle to its achievement of its natural aspirations. So uh, Trump, if you saw in the campaign, almost demonized China. I mean, China was the 
party to be blamed for virtually everything. Now we've seen some adaptation here at the beginning of the Trump administration, though now one sees it rocking back a little bit. Initially, I think because of the concern about North Korea, the right, the rightful concern about North Korea, Trump said, I'll leave the other parts of the argument to the side for the moment if we can find a way to work together on North Korea, and actually seems to have made China solving the North Korea threat a, the, the, the test case for American-Chinese relations. In the Chinese case, she sees the U.S. and its unwillingness to let go and to move back a little bit as the principal obstacle to China becoming what China wants to be. So the, the analogies are, are, I think, at least uh, haunting. And I guess given the uh, copyright disputes that have gone on over the last uh, you know, decade or so between China and uh, the U.S., you know, taking, taking make, make China great again, I um, guess it's a little bit of turnabout on that, huh? It's, uh, exactly. I think that uh, we're not paying any, uh, any uh, rights. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's another great deal that President Trump made. He, he got the... <laughs> He got the, exactly. uh, the phrase. He got it, it for free. Got and it for got free. It, for free. Um, you, you, uh, it was reported that you, um, I think within like the last month, uh, went and, and presented to members, perhaps uh, old friends of yours, uh, at the National Security Council. Um, and I think, I believe you, I, I don't know if you were in the White House itself, um, but, but you were down in Washington. I think this was about a, a month ago. Um, what was the reaction within the National Security Council uh, to what you're writing and, and your ideas? And do you have any sense, serious question, do you have any sense whether uh, President Trump has received a copy of the book? Was that uh, anything left behind? There, it's interesting to, to read the number of folks within the White House um, that, that you really do follow Thucydides and have, have studied him. Uh, um, so I'm, I'm curious about your visit down there and if you've heard anything, um, and I do mean this seriously, about whether uh, your book is, has made its way uh, to the president. So, so uh, I did have the opportunity to spend a couple of hours uh, with uh, Matt Pottinger, who's the uh, assistant to the president for China and Asia, and his team, uh, uh, discussing the book and the arguments and the, particularly the question of how to escape Thucydides trap. And I've also had the opportunity to talk to the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, who is a great Thucydides fan. I would also note that uh, Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, is a big reader of Thucydides. In fact, uh, in conjunction with the book, we put up a website on Thucydides trap, and there's a little... Uh, uh, tab one, look who's talking about Thucydides, and you can see Mattis you know, on the topic. And Bannon, uh, Steve Bannon, who's the President's Chief Strategist, is very interested in Thucydides, a big reader of Thucydides. Indeed, uh, Bannon's uh, uh, password before he entered the White House was Sparta. Uh, he's a big uh, admirer of Sparta. So there's no question there are lots of people in the White House who've thought about uh, Thucydides and Thucydides' trap. I have no information about whether uh, this includes the president. In the Chinese case, because I came back from Beijing uh, maybe two and a half weeks ago, uh, everybody is talking about Thucydides, uh, and everybody that's connected to the government and to the related think tanks, because Xi Jinping often talks about Thucydides. And while 
there won't be a Mandarin version of the book for some months. Uh, uh, there's already a pirated Mandarin version, you know, that's been passed around at the higher levels of the government because a number of people came talking to me about what about this chapter and what about that chapter who only read Mandarin. And one guy had a Mandarin version there, and I said, you know, it's interesting because I resisted uh, uh, trying to get my book translated and published in China until after the 19th Party Congress, figuring I couldn't get through the censors. And uh, uh, so the fellow looked a little sheepish, and he said, well, somehow we have our means and methods. (laughs) (laughs) The the darn copyright problem again. It goes goes both ways. Exactly. Uh, I didn't – I don't – don't think I'm getting any royalties on those copies. No. I didn't write this for the royalties, and I was actually flattered that as many people are engaged in the argument. She she himself has been very interesting on the topic because he's talked about it in different public meetings yes. you know, now over several years. And he, he's got two views. He says, on the one hand, he doesn't like this inevitability implication. So he tries to argue... No, Thucydides trap, I don't agree with inevitability. And I say, I, I agree, not inevitable. That was exaggeration. Uh, but then, on the other hand, he says, and this I strongly agree with, that the real question is, how can we avoid Thucydides trap? So, uh, just uh, in the last three months, the leading Chinese party paper in China had a published uh, on, on a, like a weekly basis uh, 27 different essays by Chinese uh, government-related uh, or think tank people on the question how to escape Thucydides' trap. So they, they're involved in a very lively conversation about that. Well, very interesting. Um, to, to close out, and you mentioned it a moment ago, and I really can't uh, – uh, you know, have a conversation with you in particular and, and about China and the U.S. with that also um, asking you your views on North Korea. Um, are, are there any good options um, as you look at this? And I'm, I also I, I can't help but think of you and this question without also thinking of uh, – um, essence of decision, which was and remains the landmark analysis on the Cuban Missile Crisis, and especially the ways that assumptions and misassumptions and misinterpretations of intent can potentially lead to escalation. But uh, w- w- what is your view? Are there any good options? How should, how can the U.S. approach Kim Jong Un? Is is China uh, is looking to China to get involved? Is that the you know which you referred to a moment ago? Um, how how uh, optimistic are you there? Um, how, how do you frame? the situation? Well, again, another big question. So first, I don't think there are any good options. So it is between the ugly and the and the uh, impossible. Uh, and the fact that things have gotten to this point, I think most of us haven't really focused sufficiently. North Korea, Kim Jong-un, this erratic and a very cruel, evil uh, uh, leader, has a nuclear arsenal now of 20, 25 weapons, has developed short-range missiles that can deliver these warheads against our allies in South Korea and our military base, and has developed medium-range missiles that can deliver uh, nuclear warheads against uh, Japan, and has conducted, as he did on July 4th, uh, an ICBM test and going to conduct additional tests unless he's interrupted, that will allow him to deliver a nuclear bomb against San Francisco or Los Angeles. 
So that's one train coming down the track very predictably. And on the other uh, train that's going to collide with it, uh, before it gets to be able, gets to the point at which it can can, uh, launch weapons against the West Coast, is Donald Trump's train, which Donald Trump has said from the beginning, the moment he heard about this, not going to happen. No way am I going to allow Kim Jong-un to be able to launch nuclear weapons against the American West Coast. And if what's required for me to prevent that happening is to attack him, I will do so. So I would say this is the most dangerous hotspot on the globe today. It's unfortunately eerily similar to the assassination of the Archduke, if you go back to the 1914 case, and it's exacerbated by this lucidity and dynamic because it's almost impossible to have an adult conversation between uh, Trump and Xi in which you sit down and say, look, it's insane to let this small country drag us into a war that neither of us want. Let's solve this problem together, which is actually what should happen. Uh, now at Mary Lago, the summit in April between Xi and Trump, Trump said to Xi, you can solve this problem, but if you don't solve this problem, I will solve this problem, and you're not going to like the way I do. And then he served him chocolate cake for dessert at the opening dinner and excused himself and went to the room next door and announced that the U.S. was launching 50 cruise missiles against Syria, uh, just to underline the point of how we could solve this problem. So I would say we're in a, in a very, uh, I've written about this as a Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion. In 1962, as you'll remember from the book, uh, Essence of Decision, uh, John Kennedy ran what he thought was a one in three chance of nuclear war with the Soviet Union to prevent the Soviet Union installing nuclear test missiles in Cuba. So what odds of what catastrophe will Donald Trump be willing to run to prevent Kim Jong-un from having nuclear-tipped missiles that can attack the U.S.? So I would say this is an unfolding, you know, it's like watching a Cuban Missile Crisis in slow motion where these two trains are kind of going inexorably to a point of collision, absent some some uh, uh, some something good, and I would hope that the something good would be an American and Chinese together sitting down and saying, "Okay, what can we do to stop this guy at this point?" Including the the most positive suggestion that I've heard came actually from Xi Jinping, in which he said, "Look, what a, what about if we had an arrangement where if Kim Jong Un would freeze." And, and not conduct any more ICBM tests, could you freeze or modify American uh, and, and South Korean uh, military exercises and operations? Uh, and the U.S. reaction so far has been, no, of course not. We're not going to allow Kim Jong-un to decide or to cause us to change actions that we're taking for defensive purposes. And I can understand that being our first idea. But if the alternative is attacking North Korea, which is what I think the alternative is, and if the likely reaction to that is a North Korean attack on Seoul that kills a million people, and the likely response to that 
these are U.S. and South Korea attempting to destroy all that artillery, plus the remaining rockets and missiles that can launch against South Korea. So that'll be a couple of thousand targets. So basically, the, re, the, the resumption of the Second Korean War, and if that's likely to bring China and the U.S. into a war, then I think if we walk that back and say, well, however uncomfortable it is to be making some adjustments and adaptation, maybe we should be looking at it. So I, I'm quite concerned that we should walk together, Americans and Chinese, through scenarios in which Kim Jong-un drags us into a war that nobody ever wanted and ask, okay, now, seeing how that could happen, what could each of us do to prevent that? Well, if we can't ensure that uh, that the two presidents get copies of Destined for War, perhaps we can uh, find ways to get them both copies of Essence of Decision if they have not uh, read it already. A lot of uh, – yeah, as I was thinking about North Korea and thinking about the conversation with you, uh, there was certainly no way not to think about the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, uh, everything that you've written about that. Uh, Professor Allison, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. This is – Great for to to uh, re, uh, sort of re reopen a conversation that we had a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect, and, and you know what? It's all bygones. I'll, I'll let that little half grade, you know, slip. I'm I'm sure uh, I'm sure you were right and I was wrong. <laughs> if you, if you I'm, I suspect I was wrong. So if you find the paper, send me a copy. <laughs> no, and I don't. And I'm I'm just thank kidding. I'm I'm kidding. There was there was no yeah. Um, thank you, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. This is a pleasure, and I look forward to talking more. Thanks. Well, that was my conversation with Graham Allison. Like I said, one of America's great authorities on international affairs. I really urge you to read his new book. My thanks to Professor Allison for his time and for his willingness to revisit my shortcomings from so many years ago. And my thanks to you as well for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you again soon. 